0: The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent, Sam Fleming, financial policy correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, retail banking correspondent. And also in the studio, as a special guest, we have Marshall Bailey from the ACI, that is the association that represents the foreign exchange industry. Today we'll be looking at foreign exchange, the scandal there and the record $4.3 billion settlement that has been reached by several banks. Secondly, Standard Chartered, we take a look at the three-day roadshow that management has tried to use to get investors back on side in Hong Kong. And finally, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, gives a very wide-ranging speech on financial reform, including some very interesting details on how pay should be structured in future. Firstly, though, to that very long-awaited Forex settlement. Daniel, you spent a lot of last week writing about this. $4.3 billion paid in total by five banks initially. Why don't you explain exactly uh, what happened last week?
1: Yes, it's been a pretty unprecedented move that we've seen last week, at least for the financial services industry, in that we had multiple regulators, two in the US, one in the UK, and one in Switzerland, fining a total of six banks for alleged wrongdoing and market manipulation in the uh, foreign exchange market. So we've seen the UK Financial Conduct Authority, which has been pretty much in the lead on the whole forex probe, given the high market share, uh, more than 40% that banks, have at the London trading desks. We've seen them getting into action. We've seen the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission and also the U.S. Office of the Controller of the Currency, and in Switzerland, Finma go into action. And they basically fined 4.3 billion to Royal Bank of Scotland, Citigroup, HSBC, J.P. Morgan Chase, and UBS, as well as Bank of America, which was only fined by the OCC in the U.S. Right,
0: so that's a pretty wide-ranging settlement, but it still leaves quite a few banks on the fringes of this. Uh, I think there's more than a dozen banks being investigated over the whole affair, and one that we had expected to be part of the settlement until the very last minute, namely Barclays. What's happened there?
1: Basically, Barclays was part of the settlement group, six banks that were in discussions with the FCA and some of the US regulators. And the idea behind that whole settlement was to basically do a group settlement in order to not have the situation that Barclays was in when they first settled on LIBOR, which was a similar manipulation scandal back in 2012. What happened back then was that they were singled out everybody sort of in the public discussion pounced on them. They had a management change as a result of that. And both the banks as well as the regulators wanted to prevent that from happening again. So they went for safety in numbers and did a group settlement. But Barclays then interestingly dropped out of the settlement discussions at the very last minute, literally days before uh, the settlement was struck. And the reason for them doing that was that they thought, given that a crucial U.S. New York-based regulator wasn't part of the settlement talks, they were mindful of the fact that they might be threatened with losing their banking license in New York, because if they agree to some of the findings in the settlements with the other regulators, then that this might prompt this U.S. regulator in New York to go hard on them and threaten their business in the U.S. Now, from Barclays' perspective, listening to their lawyers, it may be sensible from a pure lawyer's perspective to say we're going for a more coordinated settlement including more regulators and including this department of financial services in New York as it's called but obviously they now face exactly the same risk as they had when they settled on LIBOR in 2012 which was that they will be going for an individual settlement with several regulators so they'll be in the news With an individual settlement, everybody's going to jump on Barclays and say, oh, what have they done? And, you know, here we are again. So they'll face the same reputational risk as
0: they did in 2012. Well, that's one to look out for. We should, Sam, talk about what this means for regulators and regulation, actually, because certainly from the British regulators' point of view, the FCA, this is by far and away the biggest settlements that they've ever reached with anybody. What does it do to their standing, both in Britain and in the world? And also what about the future of regulation of foreign exchange? The
2: FCA right through this process has been telegraphing that it wants to be in the lead, as Dan says, because of the huge market share that London has in forex trading. The UK has tended to levy smaller fines than its US counterparts. And I think one big turning point in this settlement is the fact that the UK fines have really rivaled those, but in the same sort of scale as those in the US. So it shows that the UK regulator is really trying to bear its teeth. I think that it will therefore be seen as enhancing its status somewhat, at least in in terms of ranking fines and that being a measure of the bloodthirstiness of a regulator. In terms of future regulation of forex, this is something that Mark Carney alludes to in his speech uh, this morning, the Bank of England governor. He talks about the fair and effective markets review that he and George Osborne launched earlier this year, which is under the auspices of Manoush Shafiq, one of the deputy governors of the Bank of England, that is looking at market structure as well as conduct. And on the market structure side, there will be questions as to whether the perimeter of regulation needs to be extended into the foreign exchange market, which is currently unregulated. This is a very complicated thing if they are going to do it, but it is one of the questions they'll be asking themselves.
0: Absolutely. Well, that brings us neatly on to the views of our guest, Marshall Bailey, the president of the ACI, which is the main trading association for the foreign exchange markets. Marshall, you've heard what the regulators want to do with the foreign exchange industry. What's your view?
3: Well, our view is that the regulators are being pragmatic about their approach to this. There is no question that the industry has forgotten some of its basic principles in a few cases and has some work to do. The industry, I think, wants to pause and reflect on the outcomes that last week's decisions mean for the industry. But working with the regulators is always the best outcome, working to educate them, working to educate ourselves in the industry. The best practices that the ACI model code can bring to the industry are ones that, frankly, the regulators should endorse as ones that have been brought up as solutions from the industry to get rid of the poor behavior. The industry needs to fix itself. The industry knows the ways in which the markets trade and and the ways in which the clients respond to pricing. And so the best solutions really will be from within the industry, from the buy side and the sell side, working together with the regulators for positive outcomes to help the economy.
0: But essentially, the foreign exchange markets have for a long time been self-regulated markets. Do you see that as being sustainable? In essence, obviously, you're talking about working with the regulators. It sounds like you feel that the basic self-regulatory landscape is tenable for the future.
3: Yeah, it certainly is. So there's no question that the banks have some work to do to prove that they can control themselves and know how to teach their staff the best behavior. And most importantly, and this point has been made in a number of parts of banking, that supervisors and those on the board have the actual power and the responsibility to get the results within the banks that they should have. So the industry needs to prove that it's capable of self-regulating. But nobody wants an outcome where regulators impose the wrong kinds of rules on the market. Nor does anybody, including the regulators, want a rules-based market where we follow principles the way, let's say, the equity market does. In an over-the-counter or a combination of over-the-counter and electronic market, one needs to be able to police and discipline one's own staff. Clients need to behave in a disciplined way. Regulators need to understand the nuances of all of these markets. And the best way to achieve that kind of outcome, then, is to teach and to continue to teach and endorse best practices and the education around conduct in a way that is controllable, one that can be monitored, one that can be proven to be effective. And then self-regulation can work very, very well.
0: In brief, what is the argument against foreign exchange being traded on an exchange?
3: There isn't a direct opposition to the evolution of the market. The market has evolved. The ACI certainly would continue to endorse any of the evolutions in the market that have been constructive. And we certainly speak out against the evolutions that are not constructive, such as some of the conflict we've seen around conduct issues. But to move a global 24-hour market onto an exchange is simply not practical in the short run. So over time, we can see the further benefits of electronification. We can see the further benefits of standardization of contracts. And already there's an amount of foreign exchange that takes place on an exchange through uh, groups like the CME, for example. We clear uh, NDFs, which are non-deliverable forwards, which is a component of the foreign exchange uh, market through clearing organizations but to simply impose rules from one week to the next or one year to the next would cause unintended consequences in a way that would not help the economy
0: but if you make a very general comparison with the kind of broad direction of post crisis regulation of the banks whereby for example structural reforms have been announced which are pretty dramatic and banks are given let's say in the case of UK ring fencing or in the case of Basel 3 until 2019 to implement them. So from, you know, 2010, 2011, so basically close to a decade to implement. Is that not the kind of thing that you could imagine in the foreign exchange market saying, you know, from 2020 or 2025, all trading must be exchange based?
3: Yeah, certainly having an extended window where the market moves together towards an outcome like that is possible. Certainly the market is full of intelligent people who are motivated uh, commercially for this, and we've seen the evolution of the market take place on that grounds. I mean, if you're a client right now, you can do all of your foreign exchange business on an exchange if you want to. You can do a majority on it. The Swiss regulator, as you would have seen this week, uh, has mandated that the Swiss have put 95% of their business through. That's an, an example to us of a very strange recommendation or request if It's to happen in the near term over a longer period, your point is perfectly valid. It could be achieved. Is Um, it desirable? um, It has some positives and some potential negatives that we could foresee. What we really like is the way in which regulators, and let's look at the Fair and Effective Markets Review that Mark Carney has launched under Manus Shafiq, is the ability for the industry to respond to the 49 questions of that review included in there, not just for currencies but for fixed income as well. Is how might we? move more of this product into an electronic market. And those outcomes are things that the market's looking at right now.
0: And just a final question. You mentioned there are positives, which I think everyone would recognize as transparency and so on. There are negatives as well. What would you highlight as the biggest potential negative of a fully exchange-traded Well, if it happens
3: too quickly, these kinds of bumps in the market can cause unintended consequences. Liquidity can dry up and therefore you'd have price movements that are unsustainable and negative for the economy. You can have certain jurisdictions not enforcing rules and therefore taking advantage of a market in a way that doesn't happen now because of the choice that consumers have to get their foreign exchange and other business transacted in a market that they find most suitable to them. So forcing these things too quickly simply has a whole number of things that could go wrong and could cause worse prices, less transparency and other challenges for the economy. Marshall, thank you very much for that.
0: Let's move on to our second topic. We had last week Standard Chartered over in Hong Kong for a three-day roadshow with investors. About 20 investors were there. Emma, you weren't there, but you were watching very closely from London. Was this a game changer? Because obviously part of the rationale for Standard Chartered doing this was to try and win back investor support after a pretty torrid time.
4: It wasn't exactly a game changer. The bank certainly unveiled a package of measures for next year that are designed partly to alleviate investor concerns and also outline its strategy to repair profitability. This comes at a time in which the share price of the bank is down more than 30% this year, and the lenders also had three profit warnings in the past 12 months, while profits were also down in the third quarter by about 16% compared to the same period of previous year. So investors were very keen to hear what the bank had to outline on this uh, investor roadshow in Hong Kong. And what they came out with was a mix of cost cuts and plans to grow certain parts of the business in order to boost profitability. So it's outlining a $400 million package of cuts across the business next year, which will include about 100 branch cuts, which reduces its current network of around 1,250 branches. And it will also look to make a number of roles redundant, although they did not specify exactly which positions will be cut and how many people will be cut in this process. So as
0: you say, not a game changer because it's kind of tinkering around the edges really. What are investors saying in response to what Stanchart came out with?
4: Well, the share price barely moved that day, actually, which is some short-term indication of investor reaction, but also some of the larger shareholders weren't particularly impressed and noted that they really want to see a change in management and that if they are going to make cuts, then they really need to see a significant number of staff cut in order to help reduce the cost-to-income ratio, which is still pretty high at around 67%. So we had one of the top five larger shareholders in the bank saying that they wanted Peter Sands, the chief executive of the bank, to leave before Christmas. At the same time, there have also been calls for, Sir John Peace who's chairman of the bank to perhaps step down largely because he also holds another role at Burberry as a non-executive chairman and just that this is really a job that is a full-time role in a sense so shareholders are are slightly disgruntled over the current management of the bank.
0: So this is basically the same message that was out there in the summer that came to a head in the summer Uh, has kind of been bubbling along and it's still very much the message now and it doesn't sound as if the Investor Roadshow has done much to sate the bloodlust of investors.
4: No, that's right. This was the same message that was put out in around June this year when um, Sir John Peace faced calls from major shareholders to perhaps put in a clearer succession plan because nothing has really been definitively outlined with regards to who will follow Peter Sands, who's been at the bank for around eight years. And while his first um, sort of six years or so saw the bank achieve decent profitability, the last two years have been relatively torrid for the lender. Part of the problems have been the fact that most of their business and profit is focused on the emerging markets in Asia, which have undergone a tough time over the last couple of years. But essentially, the bigger shareholders are now calling for a change in management, and they want to see a significant reduction in costs.
0: Well, that's the big question that Stanchart has yet to answer. Let's move on to our final topic for the day. Mark Carney, as Sam mentioned earlier, gave a big speech on Monday and talked about a lot of areas of financial reform. I think probably one of the most interesting things he had to say was around pay and how bankers' pay should potentially be overhauled once again, in order to cope with some of the other regulatory changes that have distorted the market.
2: Mark Carney refers to the European Union's bonus cap, which is a cap they're imposing on the size of bonuses relative to fixed pay, and says this is having the undesirable side effect of limiting the scope for banks to um, hold back pay when something goes wrong. And he says that this needs to be addressed. And one way could be to pay bankers in the form of something other than cash. And he floats the idea of banks paying certain staff in performance bonds. This refers to an idea which was put forward last month by Bill Dudley, the president of the New York Federal Reserve, in which he suggests that the senior bankers could be paid in -in bail-inable debt potentially, and then in the case of a large fine, senior managers could actually forfeit their performance bonds uh, as a way of ensuring that their interests are aligned with the long-term interests of uh, creditors of the bank and uh, indeed uh, ensure that they are behaving in a way which ensures they prioritise
0: the financial health of the company rather than taking excessive risks. Daniel, not that I wish to make you an apologist for the banks, but I suspect bankers that you talk to will be telling you, oh God, this is just another regulator making more changes to our pay. We're going to be surviving on a pittance before you know it (laughs) Uh,
1: yes uh, that's definitely true and even more than that there are big questions question marks over whether it's even feasible because to pay fixed salary in bonds is surely gonna make the european banking authority which looks at european pay rules for banks want to reconsider whether actually fixed pay is still fixed pay or whether then if part of it is being paid in bonds whether it should count to variable pay and then it would be again be subject to the bonus cap Now, bankers agree with Mark Carney that the bonus cap is a very crude and, in a way, dumb piece of regulation in the sense that it's just setting a limit on a cap, but it sort of goes against everything that regulators have done in the past few years, which is to make bankers more accountable in their pay so that if something goes wrong, then their bonus can be taken back or it cannot be paid out. So they have something to be held accountable for.
0: It essentially motivates banks to pay a higher proportion of a banker's pay in fixed salary as opposed to bonus.
1: Yeah, but the big worry is now that regulators are again going another step too far, by now also regulating fixed pay and making it even more complicated. We've already seen with the bonus cap coming in another form of pay, which is allowances. So we already have a very complicated system of bonuses, which are deferred, partly cash, partly shares. Some banks like Credit Suisse and UBS already have have bonds that they pay actually in their variable pay. Then we've got the allowances and then we'll have fixed pay, which is also partly paid in some other fancy instrument. So some bankers say, that pay now increasingly looks like a subprime CDO did before the crisis, which means it's too complicated, nobody understands it, and nobody knows how much he'll actually get out of it at the end of of it.
0: The great pay debate goes on. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Daniel. For the last time at the FT. Sadly, Daniel is leaving us going back to Germany. We will welcome his replacement in a few weeks time. Also thanks Sam, Emma here in the studio and Marshall Bailey from the ACI. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com
3: forward slash podcasts.